This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. The Gist is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 80% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code THEGIST. And buy Sherry's Berries. Fresh berries dipped in chocolate starting at just $19.99 are a great holiday gift. Order now and use the promo code GIST to double your berries for just $10 more. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. Click on the microphone in the top right corner and use the code GIST. The following podcast contains explicit language. It's Thursday, December 10th, 2015 from Slate. It's the GIST. I'm Mike Pesca. Serial's back. Sarah Koenig's back. The theme music is back. The deep, deep, deep reporting is back. I talked to Josh and Ben and another Ben and a guy I'm calling Scott, it's not his real name, and Ken and John and Jason and Mark and Zach and Austin and Shane and Daryl. How come Scott got anonymity? Scott must admit something pretty big if he gets anonymity. She's got a lot of other names there. She could say, you know what, Scott, I don't really need you if you don't give me your name. Anyway, there's every reason to think that Serial, once again, is going to be interesting and thorough and great. Last time around, I voiced a concern. I hope that uh, the last season wouldn't just devolve into a contemplation of the nature of truth. And I think it avoided that. I was satisfied. She herself, Sarah, came out and said she thought Adnan Saeed was uh, not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. This year, I have a different concern. So the story is about Sergeant Bo Bergdahl, who was uh, held captive by the Taliban for five years. I've talked about him a lot on the show. It's a really interesting case. And here's my concern, stakes. Now, you might say stakes. How could the stakes be bigger? This was an international incident. Five Taliban, dangerous Taliban prisoners were exchanged for him. It became a row of national and international importance. Just yesterday, the House Armed Services Committee issued a really interesting report about if the president went around the law to get the uh, deal done and just how dangerous were the detainees, the Taliban detainees that were exchanged. That's all true and that's all good. But at the fundamental level, storytelling depends on stakes. The reason that Serial Season 1 worked so well was the stakes were really, really clear. Here was a crime. Here was a murder. So it's life and death. And if the murder wasn't committed by Adnan Saeed, that means that an innocent man would be in jail for a crime he didn't commit and by implication that the murderer would have gone free. But what are the stakes here? There are a lot of interesting issues. So it could be a really satisfying podcast just by that alone. However, as I listened to Episode 1, Even if what Bo Bergdahl says was his motivation, was indeed his motivation, I still have no sympathy for him. Beyond no sympathy for him, I still think what he did, leaving his base in Afghanistan to, he says, bring to light some abuses, some excesses that he saw was dangerous and stupid and unethical and yeah, criminal. So let's put that aside. It's not that I have sympathy or don't have sympathy with the main character. That's not it. But 
It's just that in a story, so much hinges on, well, what do you believe? What's the truth? And even if his truth is the truth, I don't know how much it changes because you have to know this about the charges that Bergdahl faces. Yes, he could get jail time, but just Two months ago, the investigator who's in charge of his case, which is the equivalent of a prosecutor, has recommended against jail time that the military is different than civilian courts. And there is a case the court could not go by the recommendation of the uh, military officer, but they probably will. So what are the stakes? You have this guy, Bergdahl, spinning a story. It could be interesting. But even if you believe his story, either way, he's probably not going to serve jail time. Well, you know what? I'm, ju- I'm just saying this. I have faith in Serial, and I have faith that it'll be a really interesting season. And since they know storytelling, at least as well as I do, I bet it all doesn't hang or hinge on exactly what I've been talking about today. Today on my show, I have my own podcast to talk about. I spiel about a panel of Trump supporters who support my suspicions about Trump supporters. But first, that old-time comedy full of laughs and gangsters. We got holidays, short for holy days, short for holy hell. It's taken me a long time to go to the post office. What with the traffic and the parking, it's just going to be packed to get your packages sent unless you are a user of Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can avoid all the hassle of going to the post office during the busy holiday season. Holy hell, avoid that. Everything you do at the post office, you could do right from your desk, except spend 20 minutes online just hating yourself for getting in the position of standing at the post office. But you can buy and print official U.S. postage from your own computer and printer. You can print postage for any letter and package. It's easy. It's convenient. They give you a free scale. Details to come. Here they are right now. Sign up for stamps.com. Use the promo code THEGIST. You get a four-week trial offer, a $110 bonus offer, which includes postage and the free digital scale. I've been to the post office. No one's walking up and down the line handing people free scales. So don't wait. Go to stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in the gist. That's stamps.com and enter the gist. The cover of The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels, and the History of American Comedy is a takeoff of the cover of Sgt. Pepper. Here's the difference. Not everyone, not every comedian is as pictured on this Cliff Nesteroff book. Not everyone's dead, although they all have killed and some have died. You got Larry David, Richard Pryor, Joan Rivers, Milton Berle, all the Marx Brothers. And the subtitle, if you read the book, is not just hype. You can't tell the story of American comedy without the drunks, thieves, and scoundrels. Hey, Cliff. Hey, how's it going? What attracted you? Was it the comedians? I mean, I know you were one for seven years, or was it the fact that there's so much darkness to comedy? Well, it's not the darkness. It's that there's so many great stories that haven't been told. A lot of those happen to have darkness in them, like yeah. the story of Albert Brooks's father, who died on stage, literally dropped dead at a roast of Lucille Ball in 1958. Those kind of things I find compelling. Von Meter, who had a hit record uh, in the early 60s called The First Family, was a parody of JFK. When JFK was assassinated, it essentially killed Von Meter's career at the same time, and he went crazy. He wandered around, started eating out of dumpsters, did a bunch of peyote, went through the desert, became a born-again Christian, and finally turned into a country and western piano player in Maine. He's a classic whatever-happened-to story. Yeah, so those kind of stories 
or what uh, uh, attract me. Well, the sex and the violence is sort of baked into comedy or the early days of comedy because comedy was controlled by the mob for so many years and was associated with burlesque. So a comedian and a stripper, they went together. They were paired. Yeah, frequently. Well, I mean, comedians, unlike today, did not perform on the same show together. So a lot of the comedians of the old days didn't know each other because they were passing ships in the night. Now you have 10 comedians on the same show. Back then you had a comedian and then you had a singer and a dance team and an orchestra. So there was only one comedian on the show. Same thing in a strip club. It was the comedian who hosted and then the strippers came out. And it was a good training ground for comedians because it forced you to be inventive and creative in order to get that audience's attention because they didn't care about a comedian. They wanted to see tits and ass. So it it really was an important uh, spawning ground, the strip club uh, uh, thing. Well, sometimes literally... Backstage babies, right? Uh, what, what, um, though, what kind of creativity? Because you detail how th- the actual uniqueness of jokes wasn't that prize for a long, long time. It was more like crowd control creativity and stage presence creativity, but people would buy their jokes and sometimes one guy would write the same joke for every comedian. Right. Well, depending on where you were performing, depended on how creative you were allowed to be. So if you were playing a presentation house in the late 40s, one of these big Manhattan theaters that seated anywhere from one to 5,000 people, you were expected to keep to your time, eight minutes, and you were expected to kill or you might get fired. Uh, And then in the mafia-run nightclub, same thing. You were expected to make this audience laugh for a specific amount of time. In Vegas, you could not go over your time because you were keeping people out of the casinos and the mob would get really mad at you. So there wasn't much chance for exploration in that environment. But in a strip club, it didn't matter. The stakes were, were not as high. So you could be more creative. You could go off script. And guys like Lenny Bruce, that's where they really found their voice was in the strip clubs. Lenny Bruce was actually established in a weird kind of reverse trajectory. He was established before he went into strip clubs. He was a presentation house comedian playing places like the Roxy, doing James Cagney impressions. But he had not found his voice yet. He was doing okay, but it was not particularly creative or inventive. Then he went to strip clubs. He was kind of deft about it. He was in strip clubs for a reason, not because because he was living in that purgatory, but because he knew he could be looser. He can be a little bit more vulgar because that audience was there, like I say, for the sex aspect. I want to talk about Lenny Bruce in a second, but let's talk about some of the mobbed up places. You detail there was... It's, it is not true that the comedians always kept to themselves. Sometimes by the nature of their act, they'd insult the wrong guy, but other times they'd play the wrong club. And you talk about a comedian who was almost killed by a bunch of mobsters. I don't have any stories of anybody really being killed, but there are two guys that were almost killed. Yeah. Joe E. Lewis, who was a comedian in Chicago in the late 20s, was working for Al Capone's uh, outfit in a nightclub called The Green Mill. He'd been there for a couple months and was sick of it, so he went across the street and started performing at the competing club. He did not realize that you could not do that. You could not just release yourself from the verbal contract you had with the mob. And so they taught him a lesson. They went to his hotel, uh, two mob toughs, and they slit his throat so that he could not speak again, which is kind of important when you're a stand-up comic. And the only reason he was discovered is because blood was pouring down the hallway from underneath his hotel room door and somebody discovered him just in time. Um, So he was stitched up, but he couldn't talk for three or four years. Miraculously, he retaught himself how to speak and slowly but surely returned to the stage. And when he did, it was a huge news story. And although the mafia tried to murder him, the fact that this guy survived and also didn't squeal and name the people who, who tried to kill him he had the respect of the mob for the rest of his life and he became the mob's primary comedian he headlined all the major mob connected clubs for the next 30 40 years from Ciro's in Los Angeles to the Copacabana in uh, in New York so 
Uh, it was a very bizarre thing. And in fact, you even talk about some of the insult comics form their own club so they can insult patrons freely without worry That's about right. a fork in the face. It's yeah. called what, the 18 Club? The Club 18, yeah. Wow. It was a really interesting club. It used to be a jazz uh, joint on 52nd Street here. And in the 1930s, they formed this club called the Club 18. And the whole advertisement was come and get insulted by the comedians. And it became a very chic thing for other comedians to go there, like Bob Hope, and sit in the audience because they loved being made fun of. It was a very unique and you could argue maybe the first comedy club because the whole purpose of it was insult comedy. That was the mandate. So it was sort of like a proto-comedy club, the Club 18. Well, so... First stand-up comedy club. Now, the idea of stand-up comedy, let's talk about the derivation of the word. And you believe it's sort of like a stand-up fighter, a guy well, who takes a punch? this is a, a story I quote yeah. in the book. It's not something I argue. I simply quote this old comedian named Dick Curtis. Yeah. Very obscure guy. He's quoted a lot in the book. He seems yeah, to know a lot of these he guys. He had an incredible memory, but he was a guy who never made it. His only real claim to fame is an episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show where he plays a game show host and it's a great episode, a memorable episode of the Dick Van Dyke Show. Dick Curtis argued that the mafia created the term stand-up comic because back in those days the mob ran, uh, managed boxers and if a boxer took abuse and, and really fought you know, well, he was called a stand-up fighter. And if there was a guy you could rely on that the mob really liked, they called him a stand-up guy. So a comedian that went up on stage, took abuse, or could just go forward, joke, 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 and was a reliable act that could perform in these mob-run nightclubs, they called him a stand-up comic. Another thing I learned from the book, as loathsome as some of these people are, Groucho Marx never knew this, Pretty ethical guy wanted to stamp out the gross caricatures from vaudeville and burlesque. Gra- Groucho Marx was a pretty progressive guy. And a lot of people think that blackface was a product of just terribly racist people. But it wasn't. And I am not excusing blackface. But understand what was going on at the time. A lot of progressive people performed in blackface. And almost every major person of the teens and 20s you can name at least for a little while, did blackface. Milton Berle, Bob Hope, Mae West, Fred Allen, W.C. Fields, people that we consider kind of the epitome of comedy did blackface. But back then, it was not considered a mockery of African-Americans. It was considered stage makeup. It was a throwback from minstrelry. So if you put on blackface, that meant meant you were an actor. And a lot of black comedians put on blackface, believe it or not. A guy named Burt Williams and a guy named Pig Meat Markham because, again, it was considered stage makeup to do that exaggerated thing around uh, the mouth. Groucho Marx, uh, when he became famous and had clout, he objected to racial caricature in vaudeville because back then there was still uh, dialects, you know, the dumb Swede was a mm-hmm. template. Uh, the Jew comic, they would wear a fake nose. I mean, you listed they had the Irish comic, they had the Jew comic, they had the Dutch comic. I'm unfamiliar with that, but okay. Yeah, and yeah. they always had offensive names like the Merry Wops. You know, it was always cringe-worthy, terrible things. And that was very popular in vaudeville for a while. But as people became more sophisticated and immigrants became more assimilated, that started to erode. But there were certain comedians that clung to it. Yeah. Just like now, and I don't mean to equate it to the same extreme, but the way Jerry Seinfeld was defending this gay gesture recently and saying, well, people are too PC. 
Maybe, yeah. but maybe also there's a new generation of young kids who when they hear the word fag or they hear a gay lisp, they say that's not cool. Right. And also, as you point out, you know, you talk to all these old comedians who will assert no one was offended. And as you point out, maybe you don't do it in your conversations with 90-something-year-old Jack Carter. Maybe there just wasn't an outlet for offense then. Maybe plenty of people that's were offended. That's completely true. Yeah. In 1930, uh, the black press, uh, there was a Pittsburgh newspaper that ran a campaign to try and get Amos and Andy removed from the air. Yeah. And if you listen to old timers or people that really are into old radio, they'll say, well, Amos and Andy wasn't offensive then. It was the most popular radio show and everybody loved it. Well, it was the most popular radio show, but no, not everybody loved it. By the way, I want to point out, your, as you know, but... If you're interested in this book, it goes through FM radio and the establishment of the Comedy Store and 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 the Daily Show. It takes it up to the present. Present. It's a hundred years of comedy, but I'm fascinated by the stuff I didn't know that right. happened even before. I guess if your parents are fans of comedy, they will say, you know, Bob Newhart's funny or my dad, you know, you got to listen to George Carlin. But more than two generations prior to any person, it's hard to really know what funny is, especially in the era before it was recorded on film or recorded. It's almost impossible to turn a person who's a generation younger than you onto your comedy hero who's a generation older than you. Bob Newhart was considered one of the hippest guys in stand-up in 1960, but to most of us my age, He's just an old man. Yeah. If you have context for his career, then that changes. I respect Bob Newhart immeasurably, and I understand why he was hilarious. But generations change. You speak to your generation as a comedian. It goes back to the Jerry Seinfeld thing again. Jerry Seinfeld is now 60 years old. He says he won't play a college audience because they're too sensitive. Well, guess what? They're 19 years old. They don't want to listen to anybody who's 60 years old. <laughs> yeah. They want to see Bo Burnham because he relates to them because they're the same age. People still tell you they love George Carlin and still listen to George Carlin. Hell, I played baseball and football from an eight-year-old and he got it, right? right, right Maybe right. that's his most accessible routine. And same with Richard Pryor. But the guy who's the rebel who's so important, Lenny Bruce, it's always said of Lenny Bruce, you know, well, it's beyond it just doesn't hold up. People will assert it was just of a time and maybe it's just not that funny. You defend Lenny Bruce. Well, there's two, two things here. George Carlin and Richard Pryor came after Lenny Bruce. Yeah. So the generational divide is not as vast. Give it another 30, 40 years and you'll find George Carlin and Richard Pryor in the same camp as Lenny Bruce. And people don't like to hear that. I'm not saying they're not funny. I'm not saying they don't hold up. I'm talking about uh, phenomena of society, generations as they uh, move further and further away, everything becomes less and less tangible to relate to. And so that's going to happen again with Richard Pryor and George Carlin. It's going to happen with every comedian you love now. Lenny Bruce is on comedy records, but he was all about finding the moment in live performance, which makes him important because other comedians prior to him never did that. So to see Lenny Bruce live would be a very different experience than to hear what's on the records, which is sanitized. Despite the fact they were on a progressive jazz label, the restrictions of the time, you couldn't say half the things. So when you listen to Lenny Bruce, pay attention to the style of performance. He used to get criticized for rambling on stage by the mainstream press, but what they were criticizing is what now is the style of stand-up. It's not like a by-rote script where it's all mapped out. Some of it is, but comedians go on stage now, they talk to the audience a bit, they think, they talk about what happened that day, then they try out a new bit, then they do an old bit. 
1953 and 54, Lenny Bruce was the only guy doing that on stage. Everybody else. Right. They say I write on stage. He was the only one who he was was the only one that was doing it. And because he did that, do it. Because he did that, it made it safe for these other new comedians and inspired them. Guys like Carlin and Pryor. And they found new things in performance. And if not for Lenny Bruce, there would be no George Carlin and Richard Pryor because they only found the balls to do that because they were inspired by Lenny Bruce to do the same. So for that reason alone, he's important. Even if he wasn't funny, the fact that he inspired George Carlin to do what he did and inspired Richard Pryor to do what he did makes him one of the most important people ever because people usually... Uh, thumbnail list, George Carlin and Richard Pryor are always going to be on that list of mm-hmm. the top 10 greatest comedians. And that is important. You know, throughout the history of comedy, there were so many restrictions. Either it, you had to play in a mobbed up place or you could get arrested. Not just Lenny Bruce. Lots of people getting arrested for lewdness. Lewd sometimes being defined as just admitting you were gay, right? Right. The folk scene had its own set of rules. Joan Rivers, you know, Toadie Fields, who was a, an existing female comedian, made it hard for Joan. Restrictions, 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 yet creativity thrived. Now, what are the restrictions? It seems like anyone could do anything at any time, but what's better for creativity, do you think? Restrictions do not help creativity, ever. If you cannot afford to live and you got to work at Starbucks all day, now you have no time to write, now you're too tired to write when you go home, that's a restriction. That is not good for art. Censorship has never been good for art. No, lot, I don't mean censorship. I mean the, but yeah, but a lot of, a the lot tough of, slog of yeah, it, well, learning lot, your craft, all that stuff. A struggle? Yes. Well, struggle is, is inevitable mm-hmm. because that's how you get good. That's practice. So I don't know that struggle is important to creativity, but struggle is a fact of creativity and inevitable in creativity. And it's one of the themes of my book because everybody struggles before they find accomplishment, with the exception of a chosen few who get accomplished and successful immediately. But when that happens, they struggle afterwards. And then everybody goes, oh, that guy's washed up. Remember how popular Murray Langston, the unknown comic, was? Well, when it happens instantly like that, then you're going to fail later. But fortunately, as much as it sucks in your 20s to fail and fail and fail, oh my God, how sweet is it to succeed uh, when you're in your 30s or 40s or 50s because of that. So struggle is not essential to creativity, but it's inevitable. All right. Thanks, Cliff. Thank you. The Comedians by Cliff with a K. We'll get into that in our follow-up interview. (laughs) Cliff Nesteroff, The Comedians, Drunks, Thieves, Scoundrels in the History of American Comedy. Thanks so much, Cliff. Thank you. I've been eating Sherry's Berries for a couple of nights now. The dark, the white, the milk chocolatiness, the nuts, the chocolate chips all surrounding the berries. The cool thing is how they were shipped to me. In a box, I opened the box, and there are cold berries, coldish berries, cold enough, fresh berries. They pack it in this cool, cold, keep fresh deal. And I put that deal in my bag, and I biked home, and I put the berries in the fridge. But for you, they just ship these berries to your door, or let's be honest, to your mom's door to your aunt and uncle's door, to the door of someone you love, someone you love to the tune of freshly dipped strawberries. They won't know you spent $19.99, or for $10 more, you could double the berries, you know, if it's an aunt and uncle deal, and you'll be regarded as the finest niece, nephew, son, daughter, or guy who biked from the office home. I recommend Sherry's Berries, the quintessential holiday gift. 
And here's how to get them. Go to berries.com. That's B-E-R-R-I-E-S dot com. And you click on the microphone at the top right hand corner and you type in the gist. It's an amazing offer. Sherry's Berries starting at $19.99. Go to berries.com and type in the gist. Order them today. And now the spiel focus group in little harsher focus. I like polls. I like hearing the opinions of my fellow Americans and the kids these days. A poll out today says that millennials support ground troops to root out ISIS. 60% of 18 to 29-year-olds say that, but 62% say they don't want to be part of those ground troops. Now, this has been reported as surprising or selfish. So why? Why do they say this? Why do they recuse themselves for the fight in ISIS? Maybe because their end goal is the destruction of ISIS and they look at themselves and their fingers that have been texting and playing video games and they say, I really, really would be a bad part of that fight. If we want to root out ISIS, you do not want me anywhere near the fight against ISIS. Now, the guy who conducted the poll, a guy from Harvard named John Della Volpe, was quoted on NPR saying this. I'm reminded of the significant degree of distrust that this generation has about all things related to government. Yeah, so it's that millennials don't trust government. But I think maybe he's overthinking it, right? Why would you want to root out ISIS? To prevent ISIS from killing you. It's a pure death avoidance play. Well, why would you not want to be part of the ground troops that take on ISIS and get into a war in Iraq or Syria? Again, I bring you back to the issue of death avoidance. It's really in line with the goal of avoiding death. The entire motivation for wanting to stop ISIS so they don't kill you, exactly the same motivation as far as not being involved in the mission to take down ISIS. So I like a good poll. The pleasures of a focus group are a little less focused. It's more like theater, not so much science backing it up. But still, CNN assembles a focus group in a theater in New England bunch of Trump supporters, and they asked, why Trump? They got answers like this. I think what he actually said is that he was in Jersey City, Jersey, on 9-11, and uh, yes, like you said, he saw thousands of people celebrating. That was Tony Ann DiBartolo defending what he actually said about Muslims celebrating, which of course wasn't what he actually said. A lot, here's a theme, a lot of the people don't think Trump's a liar because they believe Trump. They maybe don't know the facts, like when Paul DiBartolo, I think relation to Tony Ann, said this. When San Bernardino happened, it's the first uh, terrorist attack on uh, American soil since 9-11. No, it was not the first terrorist attack on American soil. You're there in New England. Did you forget the Boston bombing or Major Hassan or the Chattanooga shooter? Lots and lots of attacks. Other panelists said similar things. A couple of them did make what I guess you could call the best case for Trump. You know, he speaks to our frustration sort of thing. But then there was a woman who is uh, ID'd as Susan DeLamis, who said this. As far as the truth goes, we've got people in, in positions of power who I know for a fact are liars. Liars. I watch the TV. My, my president comes on the TV and he lies to me. I know he's lying. He lies all the time. Yeah, so she doesn't like liars. Okay. Seems to be maybe a little more going on there than a cool assessment of the available data. The woman, we should note the visual there, she was wide-eyed. She was pointing her fingers, kind of gesturing pretty aggressively. She continued on. I don't believe any one of them, not one. I believe Donald. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Exactly. I'm telling you, he says what I'm thinking. Exactly. I've never been involved in politics, 
Never had an interest in any of it. So the first time I heard her saying never been involved, never had an interest, I thought she was talking about herself. But it turns out she must have been talking about Trump, that Trump wasn't interested in politics before that. Because Susan DeLamis is interested in politics. Susan DeLamis is a Tea Partier. Susan DeLamis is a Obama birther. And you know all this because Susan DeLamis is a two-term member of the New Hampshire House of Representatives. She has petitioned the New Hampshire Attorney General to remove Barack Obama's name from the ballot because he's not naturally born. And I went to her Facebook page. Here are the last three posts. Most recent post, an anti-Salalinsky thing. Then this post, abortion equals murder. Abortion provider equals accessory to murder. Taxpayers' money to provide funding for abortion equal accessory to murder. And then the next post had this statement from her. I murdered my baby in 1988 with the help and encouragement of Planned Parenthood. It was the worst and most selfish decision I ever made. With the help of Planned Parenthood, I am a murderer who will be guilty of murder for the rest of my life. So this was who CNN got to be in the focus group of regular Americans talking about why they like Trump. He's speaking our minds, our minds, Mm -hmm. when the pundits and the experts and all the people who are supposed to be in the know and know all this stuff, and they're so great, I know some of them, maybe not all, but some of them are lying to me. Another member of the focus group was a guy named John Heichel, who is also a New Hampshire state representative. He actually said some of the most rational things about Trump, like he was uncomfortable with Trump's painting all Muslims with a broad brush. And also, there's a nine-person focus group. Susan DeLamis' husband, Jerry DeLamis, was there. He didn't say much in the focus group, but this summer, he was pretty vocal about his plan for an art show as a local New Hampshire TV station WMUR reported. The 60-year-old former Marine wants to hold a Muhammad drawing contest just weeks after two gunmen were killed and a security guard wounded outside of a similar contest in Garland, Texas, and five months after a gunman in France killed 12 people at the Paris magazine Charlie Hebdo for publishing satirical pictures of Muhammad. But DeLamis doesn't think he's putting others in harm's way. And I'm forcing anyone to, to come. Uh, unlike Sharia might. So that was this summer's plan, the summer before Jerry DeLamis showed up in a big news story on a ranch. My name's uh, Jerry DeLamis. I'm the uh, commander of the base camp here at uh, the Bundy Ranch and head of the outside security forces uh, to protect the Bundys uh, from our uh, overreaching of the federal government. Yeah, the Bundy Ranch. So there you have it. Just a few of the regular Americans supporting every man, Donald Trump, Provided that every man is an elected New Hampshire state rep or her spouse or is a military member slash provocateur, live free or die indeed. And that's it for today's show. It's produced by Mike Volo, who supposedly thinks he's so great, but he's a liar and he knows he's a liar. Jason Gambrell did record the show or did he lie about recording the show? Yes, he also did that. Andy Bowers, executive producer, he says what we're all thinking. The gist, for the first time, a podcast that isn't politically correct. We don't call it little person hacky sack. We call it midget football, damn it. Umperu, deperu, duperu, and thanks for listening.